please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been in a series of messages looking at this letter of Paul. And we find ourselves in chapter 5 this morning on this Pentecost Sunday. Originally, I had the first 11 verses of chapter 5, but I believe we're going to cover simply verses 1 through 5 and save verses 6 through 11 for next Sunday in our communion service. Paul, as you know, if you've been following, is preaching and teaching on justification. And he's made it clear in the four previous chapters that justification is only by faith in Christ Jesus. Well, there is a turning point in chapter 5 of the letter, and this is where the Apostle Paul will begin to apply some of the benefits and demonstrate the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. We might call these the benefits of justification. And in our text this morning, I want you to see four items. Two of them are blessings we possess as a result of our justification in Christ Jesus. And then Paul outlines two areas in which we rejoice. Two blessings we possess and two areas in which we rejoice based on our justification by faith in Christ Jesus. So along with an outline of the message, join me and let's ask God in prayer to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Holy Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday, we pray that you would be our master teacher, that you would bring the very word of God to life in our hearts, in our minds, and throughout our lives. Lord, do all of these things, and most of all, glorify yourself through this time of study. We make our prayer humbly, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, Paul says one of the benefits we have is peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say the desire for peace is universal. Every day we hear the news of the miserable lack of peace internationally in our own nation domestically and privately in human hearts. I'm grieved by the suicide and mental illness rate, which has been greatly accelerated in our country. And I believe this offers a silent witness to, among many things, a lack of peace. There is a yearning for peace in every human being. And it stems from the nature of our creation. You see, God created human beings to glorify himself and to enjoy a relationship with him in peace for a lifetime. Prior to the fall, man enjoyed perfect peace with God. Adam and Eve were secure in their relationship with God. Therefore, they had no shame before him and before each other. There was no reason to hide. No reason to cover up. Nevertheless, our first parents fell into sin, as you know, and plunged the whole human race into 
a sinful condition. See, sin is woven into our DNA as human beings because of our federal representatives, Adam and Eve. And so every time a baby is born, we're born with the sin nature. All of us come into the world with that sin nature. In place of peace, we have strife, we have injustice, we have things like war and death and disease, and poverty and pollution and discord at work and in our everyday relationships and in our families. You know, when I hear someone say, if God is good, if there really is a God, then why do we have all these miserable conditions in the world? Well, the Bible is very clear in that teaching. It's not because of God, it's because of us and our sinful nature. We have brought about these circumstances. Worst of all, a true sense of peace is absent in our individual lives. Because our peace with God has been severed by sin. That's why Adam and Eve covered up immediately when they sinned and God came looking for them in the garden. Sin brings a break in fellowship. Sin brings destruction. That's one of the reasons why we read the story of the demoniac in amongst the garrisons this morning in Luke chapter 8, 26-39. If you look at this man closely, there is alienation. There is shame. There is confusion. There is bondage. There is self-destructive behavior. Matthew tells us in his version that this man was cutting himself. There's emotional misery. You know, when we look at this story, it's very easy to say, well, there's a demon-possessed man. I mean, after all, that's not my situation or my condition. But you know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, where it speaks of our salvation in Christ, that we at one time were under the prince of the power of darkness. That we at one time were slaves to the devil. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. There's only two kinds of people. There are those who belong to God by faith in Christ Jesus, and there are all others who belong to to Satan. And whether you're slightly owned and possessed by Satan or overwhelmingly owned and possessed by Satan, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because ultimately you belong to him. And I believe that the picture of this demoniac in Luke 26 is an outward, visible picture of many inward spiritual realities about human beings. All of us are alienated from God. All of us are in bondage, and we practice, to one degree or another, self-destructive behavior, emotional misery. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the Bible makes it clear that outside of Jesus Christ, we have no peace with God at all. In fact, we are His enemies. If you skip down to verse 10, Paul makes that abundantly clear. And Paul is telling us that justified sinners through Jesus Christ have been reconciled with God and brought back into fellowship with Him. Now, additionally, this is not merely a futuristic peace, but a present possession. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. And do not let them be afraid. A true, lasting peace 
in every sphere of our lives begins with a peace with God. A peace with God. And you'll notice that in this man's life. This man was out of control. This man demonstrated outwardly and physically all the spiritual realities of when we are outside of Christ. But when the people came to see him, in verse 35 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. What a magnificent picture of peace. Isaiah said, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And frankly, ladies and gentlemen, a lot of Christians, and sometimes even in my own life as well as a pastor, I don't notice that peace. It's a supernatural peace. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians that it goes way beyond what we can imagine. It is beyond the normal peace. And you know, people try to get a superficial, earthly, temporary peace in this life through all sorts of methods. Some people drink too much and try to escape. Some people take drugs to try to relax and zone out. Illicit drugs. There are all kinds of behaviors. Some people join cults. They play music and try to do mind focus on certain things. Some take yoga to try to reduce the stress. But none of these things can bring the lasting supernatural peace that only God can give. And I think sometimes we lose sight that we have been fully justified by faith in Jesus Christ. If you think today that there is something else you need to do to encourage God's love for you, you are mistaken. If you think there's something that you have done that cannot be eliminated by faith and pardoned by a holy God, you are wrong. And those things destroy our peace. I try to take walks these days to maintain my temple. <laughs> Make sure the temple doesn't get too large, you know. And usually it's three to five miles. I was out walking yesterday morning and going at a good clip and enjoying the weather, and I began, for some reason, to think about all the mistakes and all the errors and all the things, the sins, both privately and as a pastor, over the last 33 years. I was overwhelmed. And I was confessing all the way, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for this. Lord, take away this. Take away that. And as I was walking, saying, Lord, have mercy, something came over me. I don't know why. It was just a thought of my justification in Christ. It's as if the Lord spoke to my heart and said, John, before the foundation of the world, I knew you. I have called you by name. You have been covered with my doing and my dying. And there's not a single thing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to me. And by the way, all of this was done in eternity before you ever sinned a sin. I felt the love of God crash into my soul. And a great sense of peace. And I started crying uncontrollably, you know, 
there are other people coming down the sidewalk and uh, they want to minister to you and help you out in your emotional state and they don't really know what's going on. And I didn't want to stop to pause to tell them what was going on. So I kept on walking. But I think too often our peace is not experienced because we are not enjoying the justification by faith alone. Jesus has covered us with his doing and his dying. And there is nothing else that can bring you closer to God than him. And so we have peace with God. And I pray you do have that this day. Secondly, notice quickly, we stand in the grace of God. Look at the second, or excuse me, the first part of verse 2, 2a. He says, Jesus, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know, grace is God's free, unmerited favor. His undeserved and unconditional love. But here it's not so much the quality of God's graciousness as the sphere of God's grace. That is our privileged position of acceptance by Him. And two verbs are used in relation to this grace. Denoting respectively, number one, our entry into it. And then secondly, our continuance in it. Look at the statement carefully. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. First of all, we have gained access into this grace. The New American Standard uses introduction, but it really points to access. The imagery is of a person being brought into God's sanctuary for worship. Or into a king. You know, in the old days, people would come and have an audience with the king. We hear that these days. An audience with the pope. And you prepare for it, and you go into the room, and you're there for a few minutes, and then you leave, and it's over with. But Paul makes it clear that is our introduction. Just to have access to this great King of Kings and Lord of Lords is an amazing thing. But not only that, he says, we have taken our stand upon this grace. Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the King. And to put it bluntly, we don't merely have a temporary audience with the living God as King of the universe. We have a permanent residence with this King in His palace. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us is not sporadic, but continuous. It is not precarious, but it is secure. You see, we don't fall in and out of God's grace like a courtier or a jester does before the king. You know, if the, the jester doesn't please the king, it's not only out of here, but off with your head. <laughs> That's not our situation. We stand in God's grace. For that is the nature of grace. And nothing can separate us from God's love. Our Old Testament reading, I believe, points to that today. God is saying, it's not for your sake, Israelites, that I'm going to act. You've disobeyed me. You have not followed me. You've not obeyed me. And which one of us could distinguish ourselves from what is said about the Israelites? But then the Lord comes in verse 25, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. That's grace. That's grace. The Apostle Paul says, amazingly, we have been introduced to God's grace. And if that weren't amazing enough, we stand in it. We stand in it. So that whenever we fail, because of God's grace, Number one, we don't want to go out and sin. We want to go back to the Father, just like the prodigal son. When he had failed and he came to his senses, he realized he had a gracious Father waiting for him. Even though he thought he would become a slave in the house, he was absolutely surprised by the Father's response. Because the Father ran to him because of grace and kindness. And so Paul says part of the benefits of our justification by faith as we have peace with God and we stand in the grace of God. Now a third thing that Paul mentions here, and this is the first of those two areas in which we rejoice. Paul uses the word exult. That simply means to rejoice, to have joy. And he says in the latter part of verse 2, first of all, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 2b, Christian hope is not uncertain. Like our ordinary everyday hopes about the weather or our health, it is a joyful and a confident expectation which rests on the promises of God as we have seen in the case of Abraham. And you'll notice the object of our hope is the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, the glory of God is His radiant splendor, which will, in the end, be fully displayed. And already His glory is being continuously revealed in the heavens and the earth. We learned that from Psalm 19 and Romans 1. The Apostle Paul calls this a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. The glory of God has already been made known through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One day, however, the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. How will it happen? First, Jesus Christ will come again. He will appear with great power and glory in His second coming. Second, we will not only see the glory of Christ, we will be changed into that. The Bible makes it clear in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul speaking, chapter 1, verse 10, we will be glorified in His holy temple. Redeemed human beings who were created to be in the image and glory of God, but now through a sin, fall short of the glory of God, will again and in full measure share in God's glory. Can you imagine that? And thirdly, even the groaning of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and sin and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, Paul says in Romans 8. The whole renewed universe will be filled with God's glory. All this is included in the glory of God and is therefore the object of our sure hope. And we rejoice in it. You see, when we taste the peace of God, 
I mean real peace down deep inside of your soul of his love for you and care. And we experience the grace of God on a day-by-day basis. And as the years go by, we stop waiting for the other shoe to drop because we realize he loves me with an everlasting love, as Jeremiah says. When you put those two things together, the grace of God and the peace of God, these things lead us to want to be closer to God and to know Him better. And that's what it means to go after the glory of God. You remember Moses in Exodus 32. Moses used his relationship to God as an argument for a deeper relationship. You remember he said, Lord, don't, don't send us out if you don't go with us. We'll go with you. Lord, make your presence known so we'll be distinguished by everyone else on the earth. I'll do that too, Moses. And finally, Moses said, which could have caused his death, show me thy glory. Why? Because he was close to the Lord. And when you experience the peace of Christ and you know of God's grace down deep in your life, it makes you long for God's glory more than anything else. Not what we shall eat and drink and what we shall put on. See, your desires get purified and lifted up. You know, one of the tragedies in evangelicalism is the fact that many teach, if you profess faith in Christ or you accept Jesus as your Savior, a statement that incidentally isn't even found in Scripture, that you'll be saved. And that's all there is. You're in. No, the Bible... Well, that is foreign to the Bible and most people in church history. We come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, but we spend the rest of our lives reflecting on His justification by faith, His peace that He's given to us down deep in our souls, and the grace that He has exhibited to us for the rest of our lives. And guess what that does? It purifies our objectives. We begin to realize that which is most important. And we do that anyway through life, don't we? When I was younger, I had dreams and hopes to be the president one day. You know, control the world and have domination of everything. And You know those dreams that kids have. Maybe you had dreams similar to that. But as I get older, <clears throat> I hope one of my children will take care of me. <laughs> Hopes become very much more economical and uh, utilitarian, I suppose. But that's the way it goes. And when you're walking with the Lord, you don't have concern so much over those things. When you're like the psalmist, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after thee, O God. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord. That's not just for the man or the woman of God in the temple. It is for the child of God through Jesus Christ. Because we've been raised up and seated in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians 1. Are you living that kind of experience? Where you're rejoicing in the glory of God. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, people put their hopes in their money and in their relationships. In politics. But the real hope is that the glory of God is going to be manifest when Christ returns. But even now, 
we are called to long for that glory because we share in it. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you have that hope inside of your life today? Well, the Apostle Paul says the benefit of peace with God. Secondly, the benefit of standing in the grace of God. Thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then finally, as if all this sounded so good, we get the challenging news. We also rejoice in our tribulations, beginning with verse 3a. The word tribulations means pressures. It used to refer to the processing of grapes. You know how you would step on grapes and the pressure would release the juice so that the wine could be made. But it also encompasses opposition, persecution, affliction and anguish, and trouble. God uses various forms of pressure to produce fruit in our lives and to develop our faith. Jesus warned his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And Paul similarly warned the converts that they must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What should the Christian attitude be to these tribulations? Well, Paul doesn't say that we should endure them with a kind of stoic fortitude. No, we are told to rejoice in them. Fancy that. Rejoice in these. And why should the Christian rejoice when he or she faces suffering and trials? Again, because God is using these tribulations to develop us as his children. And Paul presents a logical progression of several things our sufferings, our persecution brings about. Notice in verse 3b, tribulation brings about perseverance. You know, it's impossible to gauge whether or not you will continue to persevere in the Christian life until it has actually cost you something. When it costs you something, the question comes, will I continue to follow? Some Christians have their lives turned upside down due to the fact that the simple profession of faith may cost them their job, or their spouse may abandon them, or their children, or their parents may turn against them. I've seen that as a pastor over many years. Life can change in a moment. One minute you're enjoying God's grace and God's kindness and God's favor and His blessings, and the next thing you know you're asking, why God, why me, why this, why now? What is happening? You almost can think that God has gone on vacation. No, he's producing perseverance. Listen to the words of James 1, 2, and 4. Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet with various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so tribulation brings about perseverance. The second progression. Perseverance brings about proven character. You know, God is at work refining our lives in general and our character in particular. That's why 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
when the Christian faces a temptation to sin and they deny themselves and they cry out, Lord, give me grace to get through this, you punch through another realm. And now you experience the grace of God more than ever before. As He encourages you in the race, as He helps you to defeat a habit, as He encourages you to put something behind you, the bitterness you've been suffering. Those things affect your character. The anger, the lashing out at other people. Where is the peace and the joy of Jesus Christ? And what is going on in your character? You know, the Greek term translated proven character simply means proof, which in the present context obviously refers to Christian character. And the term was used of testing precious metals, such as silver and gold, to demonstrate their purity. When Christians experience tribulations that demand perseverance, that perseverance in turn produces in them proven spiritual character. You see, that's part of the peace and the grace of Christ. There is in us a desire not to hide. There is in us a desire to have integrity. And those things naturally coincide with peace. Because when you're not deceiving and when you're not lying and when you're not hiding, you can stand fully assured. You don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to stake your claim. You don't have to put forward your rights. Because you're in harmony with God. Well, perseverance brings proven character. Finally, he says, proven character brings about hope. In verse 4b and 5, Paul returns to the subject of hope. But the hope here is not exactly the same as 2b. The first hope was a hope of the glory of God as its object. This hope in this verse is God's faithfulness to his promises. It's the hope that the writer of Hebrews mentioned in chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Where he says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both pure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This is a more practical hope in our day-to-day living. So that as God is developing our character and developing our perseverance, our hope continues to grow. Just like we learned about in Abraham in chapter 4. In hope, against hope, he believed. And he grew strong in his faith. Because he believed God's promises. And then the writer of Hebrews says, By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We not only believe in God's promises, but God wanted to make it abundantly clear he would never break his promise by swearing himself to keep them, which he did not do because God never lied. You have that hope today. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. The hardest time to digest those words are when you're going through a difficult time, financially, domestically, maritally. Ephesians 1, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling great part of the massive restoration that our Lord is bringing about in the whole universe has to do with our character. God is restoring integrity in us, which was lost due to the fall. And the more 
in line, our character comes with God's character, the more we want to say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. And our prayers fall in line with the Lord's prayer. Moreover, this is a hope that will not disappoint. Look at verse 5. Hope to not disappoint. I'm sure all of us have had many disappointments in life. Failed marriages, failed relationships. Children who've broken our hearts, a loss of career, a loss of health, financial reversal. How is it that this hope we have will not disappoint? Paul tells us that the reason this hope will not disappoint is because God's unconditional and everlasting love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, today is Pentecost. We look back and we celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles and ultimately upon the nations. It was a unique and unrepeatable event. But the pouring out of God's unconditional and perfect love in our hearts through embracing Jesus Christ is a permanent gift which continues throughout life. And the integration of historical ministry of God's Son on the cross with the contemporary ministry of His Spirit in our hearts is one of the most wholesome and satisfying features of the gospel. We have a great hope. It's not just spiritual. It's based on Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it all begins when we embrace Him by faith. Have you done that? Have you invited Jesus Christ into your life and heart and thrown your entire life into His hands in trust and faith. If you haven't done that, I invite you to do that today as the Spirit would lead you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for these marvelous verses. We thank You for Your peace that we enjoy, Your grace, Your mercy. And even in the difficulties of life that we can find joy as we rejoice knowing full well that you are at work in us. He who began a good work will continue to perform it until the very day of Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to submit to you. Bring forth all that you want to bring forth in our lives. Father, I pray this morning, if there's one or two here or more that have never known you through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and now at your right hand, Lord, may you lead them to place their faith and trust in Jesus. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.